Chapter 2 Air Force Heritage Section 2A The Air Force and the Mid-1900s 2.1 United States Air Force 18th of September 1947 to present Continuing the chronological events leading to our Air Force of today and tomorrow, we recognize that airmen have been breaking barriers for over 70 years. With victory in World War II, on 26 July 1947, President Harry S. Truman signed into law the National Security Act of 1947, which created a separate and independent department of the Air Force. After a century of significant advancements in aviation and after 40 years of operating under the U.S. Army, on 18 September 1947, the U.S. Air Force was officially established as an independent, equal branch of our military. Under the leadership of the first Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Carl A. Spatz, the Air Force clarified roles and missions to meet the challenges of the growing Cold War. First female in U.S. Air Force, Esther McGowan Blake. In June 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act gave women permanent status in the regular and reserve forces of all branches of the military. On 8 July 1948, Esther McGowan Blake became the first woman in the Air Force, enlisting the first minute of the first hour of the first day that Air Force duty was authorized. Although it was not her first experience with the military, her driving force for serving was to free a soldier from clerical work to fight, with the hopes of ending the war sooner. 2.2. The Berlin Blockade and Operation Vittles On 24 June 1948, the Soviet Union blockaded surface routes between Berlin and the Western Occupation Zones in Germany, exploiting the arrangements under which the United States, Great Britain, and France had occupied Germany. The Soviets blockaded railroad and road corridors to the 2.5 million residents of West Berlin, located deep within Communist East Germany. Two days after the Soviet Union blockade, the Allies worried that an attack against the blockade on the ground could precipitate World War III. Instead, an air bridge into Berlin was built, and for 15 months the 2.2 million inhabitants of the western sectors of Berlin were sustained by air power. The Berlin Airlift, also known as Operation Vittles, delivered an abundance of supplies, food, medicine, and coal on C-47 and C-54 cargo aircraft. More than 2.3 million tons of supplies were delivered on over 277,000 flights, which equated to one flight every three minutes. When the Soviets finally lifted the blockade, the airlift's success represented one of the great Western victories of the Cold War. The Berlin airlift was arguably air power's single most decisive contribution to the Cold War, unquestionably achieving a profound strategic effect through the nonviolent use of air power and diffusing a potentially disastrous confrontation. 2.3. The Korean War. The Peninsula Divided. In the early 1900s, China had political interests in the Korean Peninsula. But through the early and mid-1900s, Korea was ruled by Japan. After World War II ended, the Korean Peninsula was essentially divided into two fronts. The Soviet Union liberated North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and the United States aligned with South Korea, the Republic of Korea. Separated at the 38th parallel, the North and South Korean governments did not settle on an agreement to the terms of the separation. The feuding between the two sides escalated to a new level when Communist North Korea launched a massive invasion on South Korea on 25 June 1950. Geographically, Korea was of interest to the United States because of its proximity to Japan. Also, 
The rise of communist parties were of concern that made intervention in the Korean War a challenging yet compelling decision. President Truman emphasized the importance of the global containment of communism and advocated for sending military support in the Korean Peninsula. Battle of Osan The United Nations, led heavily by the United States, quickly engaged in support of the South while China and the Soviet Union aligned with the North. Battles ensued in Korea from June through September in 1950, with severe gains and losses on both sides. The Battle of Osan was primarily fought by the U.S. Army in July 1950. Significant losses were experienced by the 24th Infantry Division, and they were forced to retreat. The ruthless actions of the North Korean forces heightened our determination, but with less than adequate weaponry and armor, defense of the South only secured 10% of the Korean Peninsula. Battle of Pusan Perimeter In August and September 1950, to prevent the North from furthering their advance, six weeks of relentless air, land, and sea attacks ran their forces underground, halting the communist invaders in their tracks. Meanwhile, efforts were successful in reinforcing South Korea's forces and supplies to defend the perimeter. By the battle's end, North Korean forces were pushed back at all points along the perimeter. Battle of Incheon In September 1950, President Truman authorized the pursuit of North Korea's army north of the 38th parallel. During the Battle of Incheon, although both air superiority and close air support missions were successful, a lengthy attempt to disrupt communist supply lines by air attack failed. A new strategy of systemic campaigning was applied to inflict prolonged economic costs to North Korea and the Chinese forces as long as war persisted. Drawing the Line The initial phase of the Korean War illustrated the dangers of being unprepared as airmen struggled to relearn close air support and interdiction skills. As the Korean War ensued, air battles in the skies above Korea challenged our capabilities, but not our resolve. The United Nations efforts repelled two communist invasions of South Korea, and the American air power secured the skies against enemy air attack. Older U.S. Air Force aircraft were replaced with a much-needed, more dominating air power of F-86 Sabre jet engine fighters that battled over MiG Alley, where superior training and experience prevailed. The Air Rescue Service medically evacuated more than 9,600 wounded soldiers and rescued nearly 1,000 personnel shot down over enemy territory during the Korean War. The fighting finally ended on 27 July 1953, when an armistice was signed. The agreement created the Korean Demilitarized Zone to separate North and South Korea by a strip of land approximately 4 kilometers, 2.48 miles wide, as shown in Figure 2.1. The Demilitarized Zone still exists today, with no peace treaty signed. The two Koreas are technically still at war. 2.4 Relief Operations in Mid-1900s Hungarian Relief and Operations Safe Haven 1 and 2 Following the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, the humanitarian missions Operation Safe Haven 1, 1956, and 2, 1957, were initiated for Hungarian refugees. The U.S. Air Force airlifted over 10,000 refugees to asylum who fled from Hungary after Soviet forces crushed the anti-communist uprising. Chilean Natural Disasters and Operation Amigos Airlift In May 1960, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, avalanches, and tidal waves ripped through southern Chile, leaving nearly 10,000 people dead and 250,000 homeless. The Department of Defense and State Department agreed to provide humanitarian assistance. During the month-long Amigos airlift, the U.S. Air Force airlifted over 1,000 tons of material to the stricken area. 
2.5. Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1959, Fidel Castro, a communist revolutionary, overthrew the dictator of Cuba, initially promising free elections, but instead instituted a dictatorship. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans fled to the United States. In late 1960, President Eisenhower authorized the Central Intelligence Agency to plan an invasion using Cuban exiles as troops to overthrow Castro and install a pro-U.S. government. In mid-April 1961, during John F. Kennedy's presidency, the invasion was ordered to proceed. The Cuban exiles landed at the Bay of Pigs and suffered a crushing defeat. The Soviet Union almost immediately increased economic and military aid to Cuba. In August 1962, photographs from a U-2 aircraft from Strategic Air Command confirmed the construction of intermediate and medium-range ballistic missile complexes on Cuba. Our military forces began preparations for an invasion, conducted low-level reconnaissance flights, deployed aircraft to numerous bases in Florida. Dispersed nuclear-capable B-47 aircraft to approximately 40 airfields in the United States, and kept B-52 heavy bombers in the air ready to strike. Tensions escalated while President Kennedy, his national security advisors, and senior military officials discussed the most effective course of action against the Soviet Union. Many on the Joint Chiefs of Staff favored an invasion. But President Kennedy chose to impose a naval blockade of the island to prevent more material from reaching Cuba. Still technically an act of war, the blockade had the advantage of not escalating tensions of the Cold War. While military preparations continued, the United States agreed not to invade Cuba in exchange for removal of Soviet missiles from the island. Secretly, we also agreed to remove American missiles from Turkey. The Soviets turned their Cuban-bound ships around, packed up the missiles in Cuba. And dismantled the launch pads. As the work progressed, the U.S. Air Force gradually deployed aircraft back to home bases and lowered the alert status. The Cuban Missile Crisis brought the United States and the Soviet Union dangerously close to nuclear war. Our strategic and tactical power, coupled with the will and ability to use it, provided the synergy to deter nuclear war and convince Soviet leaders to remove the nuclear weapons from Cuba. Note. In the early 1960s, the strategic doctrine of mutually assured destruction came to the forefront of national strategy. The doctrine was based on the theory that superpower strategic nuclear forces could be sized and protected to survive a nuclear attack and retaliate with sufficient force to destroy the other side. Such retaliatory destruction was considered to be deterrent under the premise that no rational leader would start a nuclear war knowing the result would be nuclear destruction. In May 1972. The United States and the Soviet Union signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, limiting each country to two anti-ballistic missile sites: one to protect the national capital and one as an intercontinental ballistic missile complex. The treaty remained in effect for 30 years. 2.6 Vietnam Conflict. The Vietnam Conflict was fought primarily between the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese over which side would govern Vietnam. North Vietnam, represented by the Viet Minh under Ho Chi Minh's direction, gained support from China and Russia. South Vietnam, supported by the French as the official government of the country, was aided by the United States and Great Britain. In the 1950s, our involvement in Vietnam began as a Cold War operation. The post-World War II policy of containment and communism prompted President Harry S. Truman to increase the military footprint, thus engaging in the conflict. But not declaring war as offensive air operations increased, 
U.S. Air Force presence in Southeast Asia increased even more. Airmen performed various duties, including support, combat, and rescue missions. Base Engineer Emergency Force Teams, often referred to as Prime Beef, built revetments, barracks, and other facilities. Rapid Engineering Deployable Heavy Operational Repair Squadron Engineer Teams, often referred to as Red Horse, provided more long-range civil engineer services. In addition, enlisted personnel served on gunships during the war as aerial gunners and loadmasters. Operation Farmgate In 1961, in response to communist efforts in Laos and South Vietnam, President Kennedy ordered Operation Farmgate. The operation involved the covert deployment of the 4400th Combat Crew Training Squadron, Jungle Jim, to provide training to the South Vietnamese Air Force, flying T-28 Trojans, A-26 Invaders, and A-1E Sky Raiders. American pilots launched attack missions under the umbrella of combat training. Operation Peace Arrow. In 1964, the North Vietnamese fired on the USS Maddox and USS Turner Joy while patrolling in the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. Following this incident, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed, authorizing President Lyndon B. Johnson to use conventional force in Southeast Asia without requiring a formal declaration of war by Congress. Our advisory role rapidly evolved into one of combat operations. The first bombing raids against North Vietnam occurred that same year when President Johnson lifted the shroud of secrecy over the operations being conducted. As a show of force, the United States orchestrated air attacks against the North Vietnamese and Communist forces in Cambodia. Operation Flaming Dart 1 and 2 In 1965, the North Vietnamese Viet Cong attacked the U.S. Army base Camp Holloway in central Vietnam, killing eight Americans. The United States responded with Operation Flaming Dart 1, a series of 49 airstrikes against various military targets in North Vietnam. When the Viet Cong retaliated against the strikes by attacking a hotel where Americans were being housed, Operation Flaming Dart 2 was initiated with additional air attacks and reinforced with aircraft launches from three U.S. Navy aircraft carriers. Operation Arclight from 1965 to 1973, the U.S. Air Force provided close air support, interdiction, reconnaissance, airlift, tanker support, and search and rescue capabilities to operations in Vietnam. Resources used during Operation Arclight ranged from one-man Cessna 01s used by forward air controllers for marking enemy targets for strikers to mammoth B-52Ds modified to drop as many as 27 750-pound bombs and 84 500-pound bombs. During this time, vintage World War II aircraft like AC-47 gunships joined the advanced terrain following radar F-111 state-of-the-art platforms. Complementing operations over North Vietnam, this aspect of the air war over South Vietnam demonstrated the full spectrum of air power. Operation Rolling Thunder in 1965, faced with a deteriorating political and military situation in South Vietnam, President Johnson ordered Operation Rolling Thunder as a sign of American support to South Vietnam and a signal of our resolve. Operation Rolling Thunder was implemented as a measured and limited approach against selected military targets in North Vietnam south of the 19th parallel. The objective was to destroy the will of the North Vietnamese to fight, destroy industrial bases and air defenses, and stop the flow of men and supplies down the Ho Chi Minh Trail while forcing North Vietnam into peace negotiations. In response, North Vietnamese air defenses multiplied, 
as well as their Soviet-made SA-2 surface-to-air missile inventory. Hanoi established an advanced radar control air defense system that combined surface-to-air missiles, anti-aircraft artillery, and Soviet-produced MiG-17 and MiG-21 interceptors. Tet Offensive In 1968, approximately 70,000 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces launched a coordinated series of fierce attacks on more than 100 cities in South Vietnam. The leader of the Communist People's Army of Vietnam planned the offensive in an attempt to provoke rebellion among the South Vietnamese population and encouraged the United States to scale back support of the Saigon regime. United States and South Vietnamese forces managed to hold off the communist attacks during what is referred to as the Tet Offensive, named for the Lunar New Year, Tet. However, heavy casualties were suffered on both sides. News coverage shocked and dismayed the American people and further eroded support. North Vietnam achieved a strategic victory with the Tet Offensive, as the attacks marked a turning point in Vietnam and the beginning of the methodical American withdrawal from the region. By the fall of 1968, Air Force tactical aircraft and Navy attack aircraft had flown over 300,000 sorties over North Vietnam. The enemy downed 526 aircraft, and personnel losses were equally heavy. Of the 745 Air Force crew members shot down over North Vietnam, 145 were rescued, 255 were confirmed killed, 222 were captured, and 123 were classified as missing in action. Air Force leaders found these results intolerable for an air campaign with virtually complete air superiority. Operation Niagara In 1968, the siege of Khe Sanh displayed the potential of Air Force close air support when more than 20,000 North Vietnamese troops, protected by hilly-covered terrain, surrounded 6,000 U.S. Marines. The Air Force applied massive firepower. A flight of three B-52s hit the enemy every 90 minutes for most of the 77-day siege. To prevent the enemy from overrunning the base, aircraft dropped 100,000 tons of bombs, two-thirds of those from B-52s. 2.7. Vietnamization. In 1968, Shortly after taking office, President Richard M. Nixon announced that a primary goal of his administration should be to end the United States combat role in Southeast Asia by helping empower the South Vietnamese with equipment and training. He charged the Secretary of Defense with making Vietnamization of the war a top priority. In 1969, Nixon initiated a phased withdrawal from the frustrating conflict in Vietnam, dropping from nearly 536,000 troops in 1968 American personnel numbered fewer than 100,000 by 1972. As the Vietnamese took over air operations, their air force grew to become the fourth largest in the world. Operation Linebacker In 1972, taking advantage of reduced American ground presence, communist forces of the National Liberation Front crossed the demilitarized zone in Vietnam. President Nixon ordered to have the harbors mined, and peace talks broke down. Nixon resolved to achieve peace with honor, which made reinforcing ground troops politically impossible. So Nixon employed Operation Linebacker to blunt the communist attack. Operation Linebacker demonstrated to both the North and South Vietnamese that even without significant U.S. Army ground forces, the United States could still influence the war. During Operation Linebacker, military leaders were able to apply appropriate strategy and tactics with significantly reduced restrictions and advantages gained due to improvements in technology, particularly the acquisition of precision-guided munitions and laser-guided smart bombs dramatically increased strike accuracy, 
On 13 May 1972, 16 F-4 Phantoms hit the Tanhoa Bridge with 24 smart bombs, destroying a target that had eluded attack for years. From April to October 1972, our Air Force and Navy aircraft dropped over 155,000 tons of bombs on North Vietnamese troops. When North Vietnamese negotiators accepted specific peace conditions, President Nixon terminated the air campaign. Operation Linebacker 2. In December 1972, North Vietnamese resistance to submit to the terms of the final peace agreement prompted President Nixon to initiate Operation Linebacker 2, an intense 11-day air campaign to pressure enemy compliance. Within two weeks, 729 B-52s dropped 15,000 tons of bombs. Fighter bombers added another 5,000 tons on industrial targets in North Vietnam. Operation Linebacker 2 succeeded in breaking the deadlock, and negotiations with North Vietnamese resumed. A comprehensive ceasefire was signed on 28 January 1973. On 29 March 1974, the last of our troops left the country. Despite the ceasefire, fighting between the North and the South continued until April 22nd, when the President of South Vietnam resigned. During the Vietnam era, air power demonstrated its versatility and wide-ranging impact, as well as its limitations. Despite an impressive military showing, the United States did not win decisively in Vietnam. Although the Air Force flew more than 5 million sorties and dropped 6 million tons of bombs, the country of Vietnam was officially unified under a communist regime on 2 July 1976. Notable bravery during Vietnam conflict, William H. Pitsenbarger. William H. Pitsenbarger joined the Air Force on New Year's Eve in 1962. After pararescue training in 1965, he reported to Detachment 6, 38th Air Rescue and Recovery Squadron, Bien Hoa Air Base, near Saigon, Republic of South Vietnam. His leadership referred to him as one of a special breed, alert and always ready to go on any mission. On 11 April 1966, Airman Pitsenbarger was aboard a rescue helicopter responding to a call to evacuate casualties from an ongoing firefight. When he arrived at the site, he descended from the helicopter to coordinate rescue efforts, care for the wounded, prepare casualties for evacuation, and ensure the recovery operation was smooth and orderly. Several times he refused to evacuate and chose to remain with the Army troops on the ground. As the battle raged, Pitsenbarger repeatedly risked exposure to enemy fire while pulling the wounded to safely, caring for them, and returning fire when possible. During the fight, he was wounded three times. When others ran low on ammunition, he gathered ammo clips from the dead and distributed them to the living. Having administered aid, he picked up a rifle and joined the soldiers to help hold off the Viet Cong. Pitsenbarger was killed by Viet Cong snipers later that night. When his body was recovered the next day, one hand still held a rifle and the other clutched a medical kit. Nine men escaped the battle alive, thanks to Pitsenbarger's courage and devotion to duty. Pitsenbarger flew almost 300 rescue missions in Vietnam, routinely risking his life to save others. The Navy named an Air Force munitions preposition ship, the NVA-1C William H. Pitsenbarger, in his honor. He was posthumously promoted to Staff Sergeant Pitsenbarger, and for his bravery and sacrifice, he was posthumously awarded the Air Force Cross. Also, on 8 December 2000, Pitsenbarger's parents accepted the posthumous upgrade to the Medal of Honor from the Secretary of the Air Force. Pitsenbarger was the first enlisted airman to receive both medals posthumously. Notable bravery during Vietnam conflict, Dwayne Hackney. 
Dwayne Hackney flew more than 200 combat missions in three and a half years of Vietnam duty. On 6 February 1967, Hackney descended from an HH-3E in search of a downed pilot. As he and the downed pilot were being extracted, their helicopter took a direct hit from a 37mm anti-aircraft gun and burst into flames. Wounded by shell fragments and suffering third-degree burns, Hackney put his own parachute on the rescued pilot and got him out of the doomed chopper. Groping through dense smoke, he found an oil-soaked chute and slipped it on. Before he could buckle it, a second shell hit the helicopter, blowing him out the door, but he survived. In 1973, Hackney left the Air Force and returned four years later as a pararescue instructor. He retired as Chief Master Sergeant Hackney, earned four distinguished flying crosses, the Silver Star, the Airman's Medal, the Purple Heart, 18 Air Medals, many for single acts of valor, and several foreign decorations. He received more than 70 awards and decorations in all, and received the Cheney Award for his actions in 1967, an honor presented for valor or self-sacrifice. Notable bravery during Vietnam conflict, Richard L. Etchberger. As one of the Air Force's most highly trained radar technicians, Richard Lloyd Dick Etchberger volunteered for a highly classified mission at Lima Site 85 in Laos, Vietnam. On 11 March 1968, Etchberger was the crew chief of a radar team when North Vietnamese forces overran his site. Under heavy fire, he defended his comrades, called in airstrikes, and directed an air evacuation. When a rescue helicopter arrived, he put himself in the line of fire to load three airmen into rescue slings. Etchberger was fatally wounded while fiercely defending his position before he could be rescued. For extraordinary heroism and superb leadership, Etchberger was posthumously awarded the Air Force Cross. On 21 September 2010, Etchberger's three sons accepted the posthumous upgrade to the Medal of Honor from President Barack H. Obama. Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger is the first E-9 in the Department of Defense to receive the nation's highest award. Notable bravery during Vietnam conflict, John L. Levito. On 24 February 1969, flying combat missions as a loadmaster over Vietnam, John L. Levito was handling Mark 24 magnesium flares when his pilot threw the aircraft and its eight-man crew into a turn to engage the Viet Cong. The AC-47 Skytrain, was jarred by a tremendous explosion and bathed in a blinding flash of light when an 82-millimeter mortar shell landed on the right wing. Despite 40 shrapnel wounds in his legs, side, and back, Levito rescued a fellow crew member who was perilously close to the open cargo door. When he saw a burning 27-pound magnesium flare rolling amid ammunition cans that contained 19,000 live rounds through a haze of pain and shock and fighting a 30-degree bank, Levito crawled to the flare hugged it to his body, and dragged himself to the rear of the aircraft. At the instant he hurled it through the open cargo door, the flare separated and ignited in the air. The aircraft returned to base with more than 35,000 holes in the wings and fuselage, one more than three feet long. Levito spent two and a half months recovering in the hospital before returning to Vietnam for another tour. He received the Medal of Honor from President Nixon during a 14 May 1970 Armed Forces Day ceremony at the White House. He was honorably discharged four years later as Sergeant Levito. On 22 January 1998, Air Mobility Command named one of its C-17 Globemaster II aircraft, the Spirit of John Levito. Levito was buried with military honors 17 November 2000 at Arlington National Cemetery. 
He is the lowest ranking airman ever to receive the Medal of Honor for exceptional heroism during wartime. The John L. Levito Award is the top award presented during enlisted professional military education. Notable bravery during Vietnam conflict, Wayne Fisk. Wayne Fisk was directly involved in the famed Sun Tae prisoner of war camp raid and the rescue of the crew of the USS Mayaquez. When the USS Mayaquez was hijacked by Cambodian communist forces in May 1975, Fisk was a member of the assault force that successfully recovered the ship, the crew, and the entrapped U.S. Marines. Concluding the mission, he was recognized as the last American serviceman to engage communist forces in ground combat in Southeast Asia. For his actions, Fisk was presented with his second silver star. In 1979, he was the first Air Force enlisted recipient of the USJC's 10 Outstanding Young Men of America. In 1986, Chief Master Sergeant Fisk became the first director of the Air Force Enlisted Heritage Hall on Maxwell Air Force Base, Gunter Annex, Alabama. 2.8. The Post-Vietnam Era. The North Vietnamese captured Saigon in April 1975. The number of operations that ensued during the 1960s and 1970s, and the millions of casualties and devastation of the citizens of the countries involved, left a sinking void in the lost attempts to contain communism. After the war ended, Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees required temporary relocation until permanent locations could be established. Many of these refugees were resettled in the United States. Red Flag The Vietnam-era Air Force included many members who entered the ranks during World War II. President Nixon ended the draft in 1973 in favor of an all-volunteer American military. The U.S. Air Force attracted recruits and maintained enough Vietnam career veterans to allow significant changes beginning with realistic, more dangerous combat training. By 1975, training was being conducted during Red Flag at the U.S. Air Force Weapons and Tactics Center, Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada. Air crews flew individual sorties and formations in realistic situations to gain application experience before actual combat. Red Flag is credited for revolutionizing Air Force training. Rebuilding Post-Vietnam military service rebuilding included the application of technological improvements for air campaigns. Plans for the F-15 Eagle, followed soon after by the F-16 Fighting Falcon, filled the need for highly maneuverable dogfighting aircraft armed with missiles and cannons. For conducting deep air attacks, isolating the enemy on the battlefield, conducting battlefield air interdiction, disrupting the movement of secondary forces to the front, and providing close air support to Army ground forces, the Air Force procured the A-10 Thunderbolt. Additionally, the United States developed the F-117 Nighthawk Stealth Fighter to negate the dangers posed by radar-guided anti-aircraft artillery and surface-to-air missiles. When the F-117 was operationalized in 1980, stealth technology featured special paints, materials, and designs to reduce or eliminate aircraft radar, thermal, and electronic signatures. Laser-guided bombs, Electro-optically guided missiles and other precision technologies changed the focus of Air Force doctrine from strategic bombing to pinpoint bombing through economy of force. 2.9 Iran Hostage Crisis and Operation Eagle Claw In April 1980, Operation Eagle Claw kicked off as an attempt to rescue 52 American hostages from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran. The Americans were held hostage for 444 days. From 4 November 1979 to 20 January 1981, 
when a group of Iranian students who supported the Iranian Revolution took over the U.S. Embassy. In the United States, the hostage crisis united Americans to recognize the situation as a threat against diplomacy and ignited a sense of patriotism across our country. However, Operation Eagle Claw was ultimately aborted at the request of field commanders directly involved in the mission. They experienced too many obstacles and mechanical problems with the helicopter fleet for the rescue to be conducted successfully. The hostages were eventually released as a result of political negotiations and will return home to the United States. The Iran hostage crisis is recognized as the longest hostage crisis in recorded history. 2.10 Grenada Invasion and Operation Urgent Fury In October 1983, a military coup on the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada arrested and then assassinated Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, imposed a 24-hour shoot-on-site curfew, and closed the airport. President Ronald W. Reagan, who did not want a repetition of the Iranian hostage crisis, considered military intervention to rescue the 600 American citizens who were attending medical school on the island. During Operation Urgent Fury, the bulk of U.S. Air Force support consisted of airlift and special operations units. AC-130 gunships proved their worth repeatedly, showing more versatility and accuracy than naval bombardment and land artillery. Several Air Force enlisted personnel were cited for special achievement and received praise for their efforts. The invasion to rescue the students and restore order to Grenada was strongly criticized by several countries and was described as a flagrant violation of international law by the United Nations General Assembly. However, there was strong public support for the mission in the United States and the date of the invasion is celebrated in Grenada annually. The operation resulted in the appointment of an interim government, followed by democratic elections in 1984, and has remained a democratic nation since. 2.11 Overthrow of Libya and Operation Odyssey Dawn In 1969, a group of junior military officers led by Muammar al-Qaddafi, often spelled Gaddafi, overthrew the pro-Western Libyan Arab monarchy. Left virtually unchecked, by the mid-1980s Libya had taken several steps toward demonstrating support and sponsorship of worldwide terrorism. Gaddafi was involved in subversion, global assassinations of anti-Qaddafi Libyan exiles and other adversaries, sponsorship of terrorist training camps within Libya, as well as supply of funds, weapons, logistics, and safe haven establishments for numerous terrorist groups. With terrorism on the rise at alarming rates, National Security Decision Directive 138 was signed on 3 April 1984 by President Reagan to establish a national policy of preemptive and retaliatory strikes against terrorists. Unfortunately, despite strong evidence that connected Libya to a number of terrorist incidents, the United States did not have sufficient proof to order retaliatory strikes. In response, President Reagan chose to impose sanctions against Libya and publicly denounce Gaddafi, particularly for sponsoring attacks on the airports in Rome and Vienna, Italy. Two years after imposing sanctions, Libya was found responsible for the bombing of a popular discotheque, La Belle, in West Berlin. This time, President Reagan had the evidence he sought, and he authorized airstrikes against Libya. Within one week, airstrikes were carried out by the U.S. Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps. Although the raid was supported in the United States, it was almost universally regretted by our European allies for fear that it would spawn more violence. In 2011, the first Libyan civil war, referred to as the Libyan Revolution, 
broke out between Qaddafi loyalists and those seeking to remove him from power. Under the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973, in March, the United States engaged in Operation Odyssey Dawn, implementing a no-fly zone. By the end of March, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, under Operation Unified Protector, assumed control of the no-fly zone, conducted airstrikes, and imposed additional actions, such as the arms embargo. Qaddafi was captured and killed by the opposing forces of the National Transitional Council on 20 October 2011. Due to continued conflict over rival governments, territory, and oil rights, the second Libyan civil war began in 2014. A United Nations-assisted ceasefire was agreed to in December 2015 that led to a new unity government, but with little confidence among its people. The country currently remains under the unity government. 2.12 Panama Canal and Operation Just Cause In 1904, the Republic of Panama granted the United States occupation and control of an area referred to as the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal is a 40-mile-long canal that connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The canal was controlled by the United States until joint ownership was established with Panama in 1979 under the Torrijos-Carter Treaties. In 1983, Central Intelligence Agency informant and military dictator, General Manuel Noriega, became the de facto Panamanian leader. Noriega continued furnishing information on Latin American drug trafficking and money laundering, while at the same time engaging in such activities. Noriega's actions grew increasingly destructive and his relationship with the United States deteriorated. President George H.W. Bush decided to take action and invade Panama to safeguard the lives of 35,000 American citizens in Panama. Emphasis was also placed on defending democracy and human rights in Panama, combating drug trafficking, and protecting the integrity of the Torrijos-Carter treaties. In 1989, Operation Just Cause tested air operations in Panama as the largest and most complex air operation since Vietnam including four branches of the U.S. Armed Forces and more than 250 aircraft. The U.S. Air Force primarily airlifted troops and supplies, but also debuted the F-117 Nighthawk. On the first night of the operation, 84 aircraft flying 500 feet above the ground dropped nearly 5,000 troops, the largest nighttime airborne operation since World War II. The organized resistance was eliminated in just six days. Manuel Noriega surrendered on 3 January 1990 and was flown to Miami, Florida to face a federal grand jury for drug trafficking and money laundering charges. The Panama Canal was fully turned over to Panama on 31 December 1999.